0: Rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. This is episode number 30. And to commemorate this uh, milestone so far in Rumors of Grace, I'm excited today to have a very, very special guest uh, from Nashville. His name is Raheem Buford, and I'm going to read a little bit of his bio, and then we're going to launch right into this discussion today, because this is going to be something that uh, I have been looking for, but also we're going to hit on some topics that uh, are going to be probably hard, controversial, but very, very much needed. So I'm really excited about this. Rahim has seen and felt how poverty negatively impacts people in the criminal legal system. Arrested at age 18, he spent 26 years of his life caged within seven different prisons across Tennessee during that time, he completed coursework for Lipscomb University, Ohio University, Vanderbilt Divinity School. Uh, he's also uh, a co-founder of SALT Schools for Alternative Learning and Transformation, which is an inclusive undergraduate program that provides a safe learning space for non-traditional students at Riverbend Prison. He also self-published his own book while in prison of, called Save Your Own Life. And once Rahim got out, he received a presidential scholarship to American Baptist College and worked part time as an organizer for Children's Defense Fund in Nashville. In 2017, he founded Unheard Voices Outreach to empower formerly incarcerated persons to be leaders in re entry, community building, and to raise awareness about felonism. Once he graduated from American Baptist College with a bachelor's degree in entrepreneurial leadership, which was just this year, in 2019, he went on to now manage the Nashville Community Bail Fund, where he has bailed out over 500 low-income Nashvillians since May of 2018. He continues to use his voice to advocate for decarceration and transformative justice. I love those last two words, Rahim, transformative justice. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, good afternoon. Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. Well, I know you're calling from Nashville and I'm down here in Franklin and it's a kind of a cool, rainy, wet day. All of a sudden fall has blown in. So um, I think we're both glad that that we are where we are and we don't have to travel. So the miracles of uh, modern technology, we're going to uh, talk to each other. Rahim, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're, uh, according to your, your bio and I know talking to you... Uh, it's true. You're a busy guy and you're doing lots of different things. So thank you for taking a little bit of your time out to talk about these subjects.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I enjoy dialogue.
0: That's awesome. So Raheem, let's, let's start from the beginning. Who is Raheem Buford? Where were you born? What was your childhood? Can we start there?
1: Sure. So Raheem Buford, uh, was not born Raheem Buford. (laughs) I, I was born in 1971, Nashville, Tennessee. At that time, uh, my name was Arthel Young. My ma- my mom's maiden name is Young. And she was not married at the time of my birth. I had two older brothers. And my early years were spent out in uh, South Nashville in the Nolensville uh, Road area in Providence. Mm-hmm. And... I didn't see much of my father. Uh, I knew who he was because he would come around from time to time, but he wasn't a steady presence in my life. And over the years, I would spend a lot of time with my grandmother who I had a closer bond with than my very own biological mother, because my mom actually, uh, she was a teenage mother and she uh, was working most of the time. Hmm. And, I would say around nineteen seventy five she met a new guy in her life and not long after that uh, we moved from South Nashville uh to northeast Nashville. Now what I did know in between that time span was in nineteen seventy six my um my name uh had been changed to Rodney uh Neil Buford and that was the name that I always knew myself as, Mm -hmm. but it did not become my legal name until 1976. And so Buford is my father's name. And that is the name Rodney that I suppose he had chosen for me. This is what my mother told me many, many, many years later when I actually found out that I had a different name, but that would come much, much, much later down the line. And so, uh, we moved out to Northeast Nashville and it both eventually there would be five boys and two girls and we were poor and lived in a residential neighborhood and we just didn't have the same types of things. We had things that other people had, but it was the cheaper things and like a, if, if my friend had a dirt bike, I might have a street bike that we bought from an antique store or something mm-hmm. like that. Or if my friend had on some Nike tennis shoes, I would be wearing pro wings or mm-hmm. um some type of blue jeans. If he had on Levi's, I would I may have on Smacks. Mm-hmm. And the story of my life was always less than it seems. And I began to see those differences early on and I was ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in in school kids would talk about you if your your clothing wasn't name brand, quote unquote. And so at a certain point my brothers and I I would follow along. I had two older brothers. We would eventually start just shoplifting for candy and things like that and mm-hmm. that would graduate to um, shoplifting out of stores, you know, taking out old tennis shoes in and switching them out for new tennis shoes and things like that and um, eventually it would go on to be, you know, burglaries and auto thefts. Me and my friends and, you know, my neighborhood, I mean, many of my friends, I I guess I'll get into it later, that we met up in a different place. Mm. Uh, And um, I would eventually um, get arrested and go to juvenile uh, at the age of 17 in february
2: Mm.
1: and during that time while i was in juvenile things changed uh rap music changed it got a lot more violent or violent for the first time and the music the tone the beats all of that resonated with me and it kind of like changed the way that i felt inside Mm. and the the worst thing i I would say at that time in my life that had happened is uh, my grandmother died Mm. and uh I've said this many times before, it was the first time in my life that I felt pain and no one hit me. And I skipped over a lot of the abuse in the home growing up from my stepdad when he changed, came this, this other kind of person. Mm. And just a lot of that was internalized. But when I saw my grandmother uh, on a path uh, away from the institution in a casket, and I'm feeling these emotions and things, and I really didn't know what was going on inside of me because no one helped me to process what I was feeling. Uh, Not long after that, even on that pass, I went and I did a robbery Mm. for the first time in my life. And I just to keep it honest, uh, I had a gun ever since I was like 11 or 12, Mm. um, 25 automatic. And that's just the way it is in the neighborhood where I where I came from and just other places, because somehow it seems like having a gun is is a right of passage in some sense. But in Mm -hmm. some other sense, it's like, you know, you feel like you can protect yourself. You have some sense of power. Mm -hmm. and so after that robbery and I returned back to the juvenile facility, it changed me, it did something I don't know what it was but I would eventually get out in July in less than 9 months I'm charged with felony murder Mm -hmm. and that was in May of 1989 and in less than a year I found myself uh, I I played guilty to a life uh, in 20 year sentence for felony murder and robberies that that's like the snapshot of it all. But that so was that. Ro-
0: so talk to me about that. Was that a robbery? That like at a house or in a store? No. Or what happened?
1: Yeah. So that was a convenience store robbery. Mm-hmm. It happened at the very end of Nolensville Road, away from town, ta- away from downtown. So as you travel on down Nolensville Road, it begins at a certain point. It gets into this, you know, the country. But right before you get into that point, that was a quick sack. And it was a, it was a convenience store robbery. Mm. Yeah. And it was crazy. I mean, I had never done anything like that in my life. And sadly, the ideas about it came from some music that I had listened to. And it wasn't the music that influenced me to do it. It's just that the idea Mm. that I could do it, I had heard it before. Mm. So
0: so you plead guilty to to murder there, and is that what was that like? How old were you? Seventeen.
1: I was. I turned nineteen at oh, the time that I pled guilty. Okay, so I was eighteen when it happened, but I turned nineteen.
0: So what's going through your head at eighteen, nineteen years old? You're well, a convenience store robbery, and you you accidentally uh, kill somebody, and you're like, uh, oh my gosh, my life's over. What are you what are you thinking? What are you feeling?
1: Well. So I skipped over what happened to cause me to actually end up being arrested for felony murder, and I think it's important to fill those blanks in because what happened is after I got out of juvenile, I kind of sort of had this 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 thing, this chip on my shoulder, and but I also had internalized the abuse from a, you know my childhood and my stepdad, and feeling like my mom really didn't protect us me and my brothers from what we thought was abuse and I believe that to this day to still be Um, uh, we ha- we got into a fight and we got into a fight because I felt like he put my life in danger when he he, he found my pistol and he took it mm. and I confronted him about that and he didn't like me confronting him and I left his room and seconds after that, he came behind me and, and tried to tackle me and we ended up falling onto this bed and it just broke out into a big fight and I knew that I couldn't stay there anymore because I had violated the person who paid the bills and so I moved in with a friend who I looked up to It was the older person, his name uh, was Tim and uh, at a certain point while I was living with him, I'm a senior in high school and I, um, I'm paying a car note part-time. I'm working part-time at Bill Crooks. And one day he just wakes me up and says, you know, he called me young blood. He said, you know, you got to go back home. He said, uh, I can't pay the rent. He said, I didn't tell you, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm paying child support and I filed for uh, chapter seven or 13 for bankruptcy. I forgot which one it was. And he said, I just can't pay the bills. And in my mind, he said, I got to go back to hell. Mm. So I said, what if I can get the money? And he said, man, you ain't going to be able to get that money, you know? And I said, well, how do you know? And then one thing led to another, and I ended up doing a robbery. I got away with that robbery. It's like the first one that happened when um, my grandmother had passed away. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was able to pay the rent from doing a, a, a restaurant robbery at night. And, and what actually landed me, you know, with that charge to where I had a felony murder charge is I it it came up again. We ran out of money and I I just couldn't see myself trying. I couldn't go back home in my mind and I tried to do a robbery. And this time what happened is I had shot a gun into the floor as a warning shot and the bullet ricocheted and it hit a guy and he, he died. He died like 72 hours later. Mm. And I didn't know that, but uh, it happened and and by the time I was arrested, I knew it, and I sort of expected to get arrested if you if you understand mm-hmm. because I didn't run. I knew I had done something, but I didn't run i I didn't get rid of the weapon or anything like that and so when i when I got and some people say well that was some dumb thing to do, but you know it really depends on what you're thinking along the way and so I'm faced with this charge. You know, I, I couldn't bear it. I mean, mm. before I even actually took the time, I, I actually tried to kill myself. Mm. And I went around I went around the, the, the pod or the cell block on 448 Second Avenue North in the jail and, and just getting medicine from people. And eventually I would take like 30 or 40 pills and I tried to kill myself because mm. I couldn't bear in my mind that I had done such a horrible thing. I wasn't raised that way. And I went to sleep after I had taken those pills and I woke up Mm. and I didn't know if I was alive or if I was in another place. But I did the thing that you see on TV. I I said, you know, pinch yourself, see if you're alive. And uh, I did. And and I was alive. So (laughs) I prayed Mm. and I don't know verbatim, but I remember saying, God, I don't know like why. I'm not dead, but I, I'm i going to try. If you give me a chance to be a better person, I'm going to do, do the best that I can to grow, to become some somebody. And uh, from that day in jail, uh, I never looked back. I accepted responsibility in terms of, I pled guilty. I didn't put the family through a trial because I I had done what I was accused of. At least I thought I had done what I was accused of. I learned later that, it wasn't a first degree murder in the sense of I didn't plan to kill anyone. And so when you don't plan to kill somebody, it's not a first degree murder because it's premeditation, deliberation. Right. And that wasn't my particular case, but the laws are written in in such a way in, in Tennessee is that you don't even have to think about killing someone and just commit a robbery or kidnapped or any felony and somebody dies that you still get a first degree murder, even though you weren't, and you didn't intend it. Sure. And sure. so I, I played guilty and mm. it all so, played out.
0: So, so you get uh, life imprisonment. So you, you played life guilty and 20 years and, and 20, 20 years and 20 years. So uh-huh. you serve 26 and, uh, talk to me about that. Experience. Maybe we'll start from the beginning. Okay, you're 19 years old. Where did you start? Which prison did they put you in first?
1: So I was trans. We used to say, we would say shipped. Mm. The slave language is very uh, intimately connected to um, incarceration, being an inmate, mm. a prisoner. And so they shipped me. They transferred me to... Uh, MLRC, which is Mark uh, Luther Reception Center in Memphis, Tennessee. It was a, about three hours away. And that was a crazy experience that I've, la- that I've learned to identify as the thingification ritual of uh, removing your humanity and becoming the thing of the state, mm. which I think Martin Luther King was coined uh, with that term, thingification. And they shave all your hair off, all your facial hair. They shave mine off and everybody else's. And um, we uh, would eventually have to all shower together in the same uh, unit, in the same space, looking at each other's naked bodies. We were given four pair of um, underwear and four T-shirts and, and three pair of blue jeans and three uh, blue uh, state shirts and a pair of state boots. And we were given a form of orientation of how to uh, exist inside of a total institution in prison. And more or less, good luck. And uh, the first transformative experience that I had happened at that place. I was in church. And the preacher said, if your daddy is a rat, that makes you a rat. And uh, I left that service and i walked into a very tall african-american individual who had uh what i thought to have a hat on his head but i later would find out as i questioned him that he was wearing a kufi and i ran into a muslim and i asked him what was that on his head he looked down he smiled he said first my name is abdullah jamie he said uh, that's a kufi on my on my head, I, and he said, "I said, what's a kufi?" He said, "Well, it's a long story, but it's it's just a hat Muslims wear that said that they're wrapped in the spiritual knowledge of God." And I I asked, I said, "Well, how can I be wrapped in the spiritual knowledge of God?" He said, "Well, you'll have to study Islam and see if if it's something that you're interested in." I said, "Okay, well, let me study with you." And I would eventually begin to study Islam, and over the time, uh, I uh, studied with them, and I would. Eventually get transferred, shipped to Lake County Regional Correctional uh, Facility for Youth Offenders, which was in uh, Tiptonville, Tennessee. So I went from Memphis to Tiptonville and I went to uh, they put me in school and I was around a lot of younger people, but a lot of older people as well. And it was an interesting place. They had about six places that looked like army barracks that people would stay and about 48 people per unit and I was uh, in I think unit 10 I would eventually uh, get into an argument where a guy was just kind of really being rough with his language with me and I, I tried to fight him and um, they locked me up I was later given an, a, a charge for assault and I didn't do that but that's what they charged me with I would get convicted and then uh, not long after that they shipped me to uh, Fort prison and that was a crazy place because that's a historical facility where uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest the uh, founder of the Ku Klux Klan uh, uh, slaughtered over 400 African American uh, soldiers at that place and that was a really uh, uh, scary prison I was scared to death just coming in and it's just like the movies you know Mm. The whistling, the fresh meat, and all of that kind of stuff being said, and in my mind, I'm like, "Man, I hope I don't have to kill somebody because I'm not going to let them take me." And so, um, what ended up happening is is that I saw some more Muslims, and I just remembered that I had a good experience with Muslims, and I just studied with them, and uh, eventually, I I I was you know practicing Islam and I heard this name when I was in the law library I was trying to get out of prison and it just said Abdul Rahim and I said, "Well, that must be my name." And so that's how I got the name Rahim.
2: Mm.
0: So how and, long how long did you study uh with the Muslim faith uh what what was the what was that experience like for you? What what did you learn? What what kind of transformation did you see in your life?
1: Well, what I was sold on was the idea that I could be forgiven.
0: Mm. And, and that's that was what you were wanting.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, guilt is a very weighty thing to to hold inside, to feel. And I needed to release that. And I just didn't see how that could get up, you know, because, you know, everybody, you know, growing up, you know, the biggest thing is God. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I never met God or anything, but I tried. What was, you know, you know, given to me instruction, you know, pray and do different things like that. But Islam offered me forgiveness. Hmm. Islam offered me uh, a continuous uh, recognition that there's a higher power, which came from having to pray five times a day. I learned Arabic, some Arabic, not to how to read it, but to to say my prayers and certain things and um, just a constant memory or remembrance that there is a higher power uh it gave me some type of i I would say some type of strength i i mean because it made me feel like my life mattered because god was was alive and knew i existed Mm. and so um i learned a lot about the history of islam and what islam how it came about i learned that um in his, in Christianity, uh, the person that is called Abraham. In Islam, they call him Ibrahim, and that um, the uh, the firstborn of Ibrahim, who he uh, came through Hagar, actually birthed the Arab or the what became the Muslim nation.
0: Ishmael, right?
1: Right, and mm-hmm. I didn't know that. You know, Christian and Muslims, you know, really are biologically the like Jews and Christians, Muslims are that biologically kin
0: mhm so the same father, the same father mm-hmm.
1: right and yeah and so um it's had a lot of different things in for me uh and it, it was believable in different ways but but i began to question things as as my life changed more and i became i began to do different things i would eventually be Shipped from Fort Pillar to West Tennessee High Security, which is one of the, which became one of the worst prisons in the state of Tennessee, and I I didn't have to stay there long, thank God, and um, I I eventually would be shipped to Center uh, Industrial Prison and Farm, which we call Turneyson of Vietnam, and this was a crazy place because it was like a plantation. You had a metal plant, a wood plant, a sign plant. They had a farm. It was a lot of uh. Um, a lot of land, and it was surrounded by the Duck River. And um, I distinctly remember they had a picture of Nathan Bedford Forrest and General Lee on the wall as mm. you go into the visiting gallery. And ninety-nine um, percent of the uh, officers were Caucasian mm. or white, and it was it was it was it was crazy. It was crazy at that time. I think it was like seven hundred people on the compound at that time. Mm. It it would eventually double, and so um, yeah. But you didn't and, stay there and, very long. Oh yeah, I stayed there for a long time. I actually, mm. I was there from nineteen ninety one to two thousand and two. In fact, um, I had like I had a couple of transformative experiences there. Mm.
0: Talk about that. What 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 were they?
1: Uh well uh the very first one was is I had a family reunion in prison. Uh I met my oldest brother from my, my father's side in prison. His name was Robert uh Jr.
0: Was he in and prison too? I,
1: yeah, he he had gotten out of prison, but he came back. Mm. But I didn't know him. He he has a different mother. And so it was through him. Because I have 13 brothers and five sisters. Mm. My mother birthed seven, the rest of my father's kids. But through him, I learned about who my father was. And so we became sailmates. Mm. And he was a very popular individual. And so that was the first thing that kind of like happened.
2: Mm.
1: The second one happened while I was working in the metal plant. I lost possession of a class A2, which was a box cutter. And then I was placed in a hole in uh, solitary confinement segregation for 28 days. Mm. And uh, it was then uh, they left a book in the the cell and it was titled On the Road to Babylon. And uh, for the first time in my life, I read an entire book and I could see the images from the pages in my mind and I could feel the emotion of the words that I read. And I never had that experience growing up as a kid, high school, trying to get my GED, or which I failed the first time. And so that changed me. Uh, I knew something was different. I just didn't know what. And so I left the hole and I began to, I I became an avid reader. And then I began to question everything. And so that kind of sort of took me away from religion uh, for a while, at least uh, when I began to question everything because things just didn't make sense. And, um, The next thing would happen is is that my dad would pass in 1995 and I was taken to the wake along with my brother uh, in shackles and chains Mm. and with an entourage of armed uh, prison guards. And I remember looking at this man in a casket and I had no emotional experience whatsoever. It didn't mean anything to me. It was like I saw a stranger, even though you know, and maybe it was my anger, you know, because I felt like, you know, he, he didn't protect me. He didn't speak to it that, you know, I had a way to make it out of, you know, to, to grow up, to become an adult because mm-hmm. he wasn't there. And another man tried to do what was his responsibility. And so that, you know, and I still live with those scars. I'm still wounded in that regard, but I saw this man and, and he wasn't my father, though. He was my biological dad. And so that. It's something I'll never forget, and um,
0: and then you're so what was, so you're still in prison at that time, and yeah,
1: 95. You know, uh-huh.
0: Yeah, so these transformative experiences at what point in that process? Because you were released in what year?
1: I wasn't released until 2015. Of okay,
0: okay, so 2015. So between that time and 2015, what happened? Because I know something mm-hmm. significant happened, uh, that your next transformative
1: experience, correct? I after the gang fight, I think it was the death of my sister because that changed me. Mm. And the same process happened, but as I looked at her in the casket, in chains and in shackles, I heard something say, "This is what you did to somebody else's family." Mm. And 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 that put me on the path of of I guess I guess you could say an atonement if you will uh lived contrition Mm -hmm. a a recognition that i had violated somebody's humanity and before that i didn't allow myself to visit the reality of what i had done because it was too painful Mm -hmm. but i was forced to do it in that moment and i think that moment with my sister. Opened a new dimension within myself, and my soul, my spirit—something because that changed me, and and it was from there that I I went on a different type of a spiritual journey. After mm. that, it happened.
0: Well, talk to me about that. What what was that spiritual journey for you? Where did it? Well, start? because
1: two years after my sister was murdered, I was shipped to uh, Riverbend Maximum Security Prison institution in nashville so i made it back home so first of all i made it back home alive in 2002 and um the prison was not like any other place i had been before people were relaxed people were smiling people seemed to be growing the energy was positive and i felt like you know maybe i can get out of prison and so uh i heard they had these vanderbilt divinity school classes and I, I filled out an application and I was told that uh, I didn't qualify because I had no previous college experience. And so I thought that was dumb <laughs> and I didn't accept that. I didn't accept that as an answer. And so um, by that time, I was the president of, of an organization inside a prison, uh, the New Beginners organization. And I would wait for the college students to come in, professors, and they would go and get seated into the uh, school classroom. And I would go and look into the window. And about the third time, a white lady came out and asked me, she said, young man, why are you looking through this window? I said, ma'am, I believe I should be in that room. And she asked me if I could write an essay. And I didn't know if I could because I barely passed my GED with a 45. That's the bare minimum. But I said, yes, ma'am. And I went back to the unit in the cell and I worked on it for about a week. I took it back to her. Then in the week after that, I was taking... Landerville uh, Divinity School graduate level courses having received or experienced no undergrad whatsoever. Mm. And that introduced me to a different community, a different energy, and it really inspired me uh, to become the greatest possible expression of myself. And I just went on and I continued on. I met a new group of people and a lot of things happen. And I founded SALT, co founded SALT. Um, I, I helped to uh, bring yoga into the prisons, uh, mm. into River Bend. I created meditation uh, classes uh, and alternative learning places spiritually for science of mind and infinite possibilities.
2: Mm.
1: And um, I just, try to be an example I try to be like what Gandhi said the change that I wanted to see and I became that and mm. that was my path up until I got out you know I had one or two down moments but that was pretty much my path mm. until 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 I got out
0: and so you're so you're taking all these college courses and studying what does that do for you you know here's a Here's a young man who struggled to get through sc- school and, and, and certainly from a very impoverished and broken background and, and ends up, you know, life in prison. Here you are studying at a collegiate level. What, what did that do for your mind and your heart and your self, you know, kind of your self-image? Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Well, for, for my mind, I think it, it, it affirmed the thinking that I had, that I didn't understand why I was so analytical. Mm. You know, why was I always questioning things? And um, why was I always trying to define something, even though it it, it had a meaning? And and going to college, it seemed like that's what you're trained to do, to think, to Mm. see the meaning of things and to be able to express that. And I was able to take that experience and and And, forge my mind in a way that I felt I could contribute value because when I spoke, people listened, and I wasn't necessarily accustomed to that because I really didn't necessarily talk a lot in prison, you know because mm-hmm. you know you don't do that much unless you just really know somebody mm-hmm. and so but to be in an environment that was non threatening and people were all there for the same purpose and to be removed from the lockup space because in the classroom, everybody was a student. So I didn't have to feel the inmate energy. Mm-hmm. And that was very important because it's like you enter a new galaxy when you leave the prison compound and go into a school and uh, breaking down complex, con- uh, complex ideas, contemplating the question of who is God, uh, the, um, Theology and um, who, what is this thing all about? And, and finding ways uh, to link the spiritual, or the religious experience with the social interactions mm. Mm. and all of that. Yeah, it just gave me, it gave me more reason to believe that my life matters.
0: Mm. What was your relationship with uh, these people, these teachers, these men and these women that came in and taught at these collegiate levels? Did you build relationships with them?
1: Absolutely. In fact, prior to that experience, uh, I didn't really talk to white people Mm. because I was raised that, you know, in a way that white people and black people didn't, they, they didn't, they didn't get along. They didn't hang around. And these were white people and they were Christians. Most of them, um, 99% of them, and they were happy people. They were human, you know, they cared about us. And it didn't, it initially didn't make sense to me because nobody really showed us that in the other prisons. And so I became a part of a community. Harmon Ray may he rest in peace. He was uh, coming from Vanderbilt, Richard Good from the Lipscomb program, Janet Wolf, she was at American Baptist College at the time. And, um, many, many, many other uh, Vanderbilt professors. Uh, so, where I met Dr. Harris, the president of American Baptist College, who was a Vanderbilt professor. I actually obtained my scholarship before I got out of prison. It was through taking a class with him. Mm. And he was the first African-American male that I had ever been in a classroom with that taught. Because prior to that, I never had an African-American male teacher in my life. So I didn't even know, you know a black man could be a teacher, let alone a professor. And he was really, really powerful and strong. And then when I saw all these other students, because Vanderbilt students were mostly white, but when American Baptist College and Vanderbilt students came together, and I saw these very bright American Baptist College students, I envisioned myself as one of them. I'm like, well, I could, you know, I could be one of them. Mm. And so it's just out of that experience, I could, the academic experience, I, I forged my community. And much of that community I still have today.
2: That's, that's and awesome. So, um,
1: yeah, that, that, that's something that is absolutely necessary, I think, for most people who go to prison. Once you die a social death mm. and you become what they say, infamous, and um, you, you're no longer legally a person. That's a fact. You're no longer legally a person once you go to prison, even though you, you, you maintain a few constitutional rights. You know, as an infinite, infamous person people can lie on you and and you can't challenge it in court uh, because you, the courts say you have no character. Right. And, um, but to be in the academic environment, I didn't feel any of that, Mm. of what the courts and what, you know, the stigma of what society, you know, puts on a person, inmate, convict, felon, all of that kind of stuff. Sure. It Mm. wasn't there.
0: So. So you found um, home, you found community, you found um, people to look up to, people to who who took the time to care for you. And then, h- how did you go from there to getting out and being paroled? Because you know you have a you have a life plus twenty. How did that, how did that even happen?
1: Well, you know, you said a lot of things about what I found, but here's something that you didn't say that I should say is that. I found myself.
2: Mm.
1: I found my voice. I located the real me. That's good. And the real the real me wasn't that person who committed the worst thing that I ever will do and can do. That wasn't the real me. That was a moment where I slipped out of humanity. That was what that was. And as severe as it was, mm. it didn't define me. Mm. Because... All of those years that I was in prison, I was becoming, I was becoming, I was re-emerging. And I didn't know that was was happening, but Mm. of course I can see it now. And That's beautiful. As I, say that again?
0: No, I just said that's beautiful.
1: Oh yeah. And so I liken it to what happens sometimes, you know, I like metaphors. And you know how like a caterpillar, it, 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 it's a butterfly, but it's not yet that. It needs to have certain things to happen. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I was forged under different types of pressures and fires, but it happened for me. And I built myself up to become free. And so it wasn't like getting out of prison free. It was like, who am I free? like mm. like, who am I like I keep asking myself that question mm. and I ask myself that often and it's not an answer it's, it's, it's an experience of an action of how you present yourself to the world mm. and so the people who saw me understood that that person could come back into society and could be an asset and, and could contribute something meaningful to society and because they believed in me They maintained relationships with me. And when it was time for me to actually go up for parole, of which I had three parole hearings, and I actually was protested by the family of the person that I killed. Mm. But even there, the sister was in communication with me. She began to write me, and I would write her back. And um, from all indications, she didn't say she forgave me, but the things that she had written to me said that she wanted me to have a life. Mm. And I believed it. I believed that. And she never showed up. She didn't show up to the first two hearings, but she showed up at the last hearing. Right. But this is what I want to say from a spiritual, a spiritual, you know, like, like, like this, I heard you mention grace. Mm hmm. And what I learned or what I understand grace to be is unearned merit. You can't earn grace. You can't qualify for that. At least my understanding of it, theologically. And so I used to talk to high school students and college students that come into the prison whenever they asked me to. And there was this one professor that always called on me personally. They say, And he would come all the way from Chattanooga. And when he found out that I was going up for parole uh, the second time, he asked, could he come speak on my behalf? Mm. Well, that person wasn't just a professor. That person was also an ex-police officer. And he had gone to like 63 parole hearings. And of those 63, he had only supported two people. And I was one of those people that he supported. Wow. In addition to that, I had met a former prosecutor who taught the second class that I received credit for in the Lipscomb program, which was the Lipscomb Initiative for Education. His name is Preston Schiff. Hmm. He's a former district attorney here in, this, in Nashville. Somehow we became connected. And he... I. I don't know how it happened, but he ended up speaking. And so how did I get out of prison? I'm going to say grace first Mm. because there are a lot of people still in prison who I think have done less in terms of severity than I've done. There are people in prison right now who've gone up for parole seven, eight to 11 times, done less than me in terms of the severity of what they have done. Mm. And that theorem, that that they are still in prison, you know, and that's that's why the unheard voices exist. Because I want to put my face on something to say that if I can change and if I can do some things that are positive,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, there are many, many others like me, and so when I think about how I got out of prison, it was a community effort it was it was it was people showing up, and there were like probably forty people at every hearing that I had and uh they took time out of that day to sit in and come into prison and be searched. They sent letters, real letters, not form letters, but they wrote these letters. I still have these letters that they wrote about me. And it built, it made me, it reinforced who I had, who I was, but who I had become. But to read others and how they thought about me, it just edified what, you know, I had presented myself as. And they gave me confidence. And while the family never said, I forgive you, and they, you know, they may never do so. I don't know. But for the people who knew me, I felt like somehow That was this vicarious forgiveness that came through them.
2: Mm.
0: And um, you said something earlier about um, about you becoming yourself and and in becoming yourself, you found ultimate freedom, regardless of whether you were uh, in a cage or not. And right. And I'm sitting and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I'm in a totally world away although we're only a few miles away, a world away in, in my race and my privilege and my upbringing. I've never been to prison, but I but I know myself and the things that I've struggled with is, uh-huh. you know, I resonate with the humanness that that I hear because I I bet you would agree that um what you did and what that moment that you said does not define you have chosen not to let define your whole life. Um, and because that shame, uh, you didn't take on that identity because you discovered who you really were. That wasn't you. And I think of myself, I think of people I know, I think of people who are, you know, living their lives. They appear very successful. They're doing the thing they think they need to know how to do. They're competing with each other who has the bigger, newer car. And all the while, this is not the real self. This is not who they really are. They're in prison. They're in prison in their own, um, you know, their own fortress of of their big house and, you know, their addiction to money and satisfaction. And I, I just... I just so resonate with what you said because yeah. you know here you are in prison thinking that you could potentially be there for the rest of your life and yet right. you come to the awareness of oh that wasn't really me I finally found the real me and now this is where freedom lies yeah um, that's, yeah, that's and, beautiful
1: yeah and let me say that let me say this about what you just said one of the things I I think I came to realize is that to know what freedom is not. Mm. and 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 that's what the total engagement you know being in a prison, you know what freedom is not. It doesn't mean that you know what it is, but you know what it's not mm. and since I knew what it wasn't, and I had already been stripped down to the lowest terms, the bare nakedness of what you know I could be in terms of like I had a you know I died socially uh I shame not just. You know, my family, myself. I harmed, you know, a family that did nothing to me, that didn't deserve. So you can't go. The only other thing that could have happened for me is death. Mm. You know, death row maybe. And so once you've been to the lowest low and stripped it all away, there's nothing else there but your true self. Mm. So you can't pretend anymore. You can't hide behind some nice clothes in a in a good car and mm-hmm. had in a nice house and you know you you're forced to know your neighbors. See, you have to talk to people at least, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And I had to experience all of that, mm-hmm. and I had faced death so many times. I had removed the un. I had removed the type of fear that people shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. We all should be afraid of bears and lions and stuff that. You know, cause that's not our habitat, but you should not be afraid of something that don't exist. And mm. I was, you know, I was taught that fear means false evidence appearing real. Mm. And, and, and those are the things that, that, that affect our minds. And so I didn't have that anymore. And so, yes, the freedom I had was the freedom to just be my authentic self. Mm. My real true voice comes out when I speak. It's not a game. I don't make apologies because I don't harm people anymore. I just say, hey, this is how I think, this is my opinion, this is you know, but I, I try to put some reasoning with it. But at the end of the day, the freedom that I experience is not geography because that's being released from prison. Many of people are released from prison literally, but never leave the prison because the prison was what they brought to the prison with them. Because prisons represent fear. That's right. And that's where you put people you're afraid of, mm. and so freedom is incompatible with fear. So, in one sense, I had to be released because my energy didn't connect with the energy that was around me, and there are some forces at play that you know I'm still trying to understand and figure out. Mm. And I, I am free. I'm, and if I die tonight, I'm okay because I tried to do the best that I could do once I became the real me, mm. and that's. And that's that's why I give myself and my service and I try to be a helpful individual in my life and wherever I go, because I know that some people just need a little helping hand. Some people Mm -hmm. need a boost, a nudge, a little extra. And if you can give that to them, they become something that only, you know, only, only, only they can, only they can demonstrate. Got it. And I'm still becoming, I'm not yet what I will be. I mean, you can look at me, I keep changing. Hmm. i physically, we're all going to change, but how we emerge from within this thing that we live in called a body, mm. the real me that looks out of my eyes and sees this yeah. majesty of nature in the world. I mean, that me is in tune with, with the real world, and it's yes. not necessarily just physical. Yeah. It's I believe the unseen, that. Yeah, I believe you know, that. and I think that's where it comes from, everything
0: so you get so you get out of prison uh through these people advocating 2015 and all of a sudden, you know, within very short order uh within a couple of years you finish your you know, 2 3 years, you finish your bachelor's and you you know, you started this nonprofit and you you're kind of uh, is it what's your position with the Nashville Bail Fund? Do You manage that, director or what what's your right. what's your role there?
1: So- so I'm the Nashville Community Bail Fund Manager, and basically all it means to me is that I make sure that the people who, who uh, put in referrals through their attorneys, through their family members, even through themselves from calling me, that those referrals get processed. And the process is that I go into the jails and I interview people. I talk to them about, you know, what's going on, how we can help them and what does it take to get them out and i you know we connect with their family members their friends and ultimately we we pay the total cash bail for them to get out of jail and because we,
0: because bail even bail for for many people they can't even afford that so they're stuck in prison until they they're even uh they don't even had a, had a trial yet so some of these right. people are innocent and some of them are guilty yeah. but but yeah. but there's no trial right
1: right well what we do know is that we, we bailed out nearly 1,000 people. Mm. And and the Nashville Community Bail Fund began to bail people out in 2016. Mm. I started in 2018. And I think I bailed out nearly more than 600 people at this point. Wow. And 53% of them, uh, their cases have been dismissed. Neither wow. they were even... Yeah. And so the majority of the people that get you know, they have a bad day, they go to jail, are not guilty of anything. And some of the people that actually plead guilty are not guilty. Mm. They just plead guilty to get out. Yes. Because the longer they wait, the longer they stay.
0: In jail, right. And
1: so that so Yeah. And so then, so wealth-based detention is more, it's a economic issue. If you got money, you don't sit in a jail. If
0: and if you, you don't, don't have money, money, you are in a jail. You
1: will. Mm. Absolutely. And so decarceration is what, my life is dedicated to because I believe that in Tennessee, we're better than what we are in terms of like, we don't have to lock out what we can't lock our way up out of a problem. We have a lot of social ills. Most of it is rooted in in the class, the socioeconomic thing, the poor, Mm -hmm. but we don't have to do this. We can do it differently. There are alternatives, but it takes a community. And this community has to be people willing to, face each other, have a dialogue, a civil discussion. It could even begin with, you need to know your neighbor. Because a lot of people, they live in houses, like you were saying, they live in a prison. I mean, you hide, you don't even know your neighbor. You don't even know your neighbor's name, literally. And so if we're living in a world where separate, you know, like 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 being separate is the way, then love can exist there. It cannot exist there because the the other thing that I learned about, you know, being in prison is that it's too energies that we primarily operate in is either love or fear hmm. fear is what separates you the thing you feel you want to kill you want to remove it you want to get rid of it you don't want to see it hmm. you try to hide it but the thing you love you want it next to you you want to take care of it you want to protect it you want it to thrive and live on and we don't have that yet for one another like we should we have it for our families but there's a larger family. That's a society, humanity. And, and that's the one I live in because I'm actually closer to people that I'm not blood related to mm-hmm. than I am to my very own blood family. Because the thing that happens when you do go to prison for long periods of time, you lose your family. They die or the relationship just diminish. Mm. And, and the only relationship that I stayed in constant contact with was my mother. And one of my brothers, and, and this is because he was in prison too, and we just used to write each other and stuff. But, um, you know, I didn't tell you is that, that I was a cellmate with three of my biological brothers. Wow. And at one time, five of my actual biological brothers were in prison, and I was in that prison with them. Mm. So this systemic, familial thing going on. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And it's, and, it's, and it's more. And that's why, you know, if you see the worst thing. What you don't know is how it became, how it reached that point to where I would have a gun, where I would be going into a robbery. You know, how did I get there? Nobody asked me that to this day from the prison experience. No one from the court, the prosecutor, my attorney, the the counselors in prison, no one asked me what happened. Mm. How did you end up there? What was going on in your life?
0: So there's no, um, talk, talk to me about, you know, transformative justice and restorative justice. Uh, okay, we, so, I, uh, we understand, I think, my listeners, what retributive justice is. We've talked right. about that a lot. But right. talk to me about transformative justice and, okay. and, and how you, this is your passion, this is your life, this right. is what you live for right. now.
1: Right. So restorative transformative justice because certain things can't be restored right so that's why transformative justice has to exist Mm -hmm. because that happens internally anything that's transforming it's happening internally inside right Mm -hmm. but as it relates to justice it asks a different question it doesn't say how can i punish that person how can i intend to harm the person who would harm someone else it asks a different question and the first question it asks is how can that person who may have been harmed, who has been harmed, how do we bring about healing? That's, that's the number one thing. And for the person who caused that harm, how do we connect with that person and find out what was happening with him or her or them? Hmm. And it's a community effort because the community sometimes doesn't want what we say the state wants to do to a person who offends society, who violates society, violates a person. Sometimes the people who that happens to say, no, we want this to happen. Mm. And so transformative justice allows for the people who've been harmed, the person who's been harmed, to come into some type of connection and communication and they determine an outcome. And that is... Go ahead.
0: I was going to say... I want you to continue that thought, but I but I want to address you know a couple of issues that sure. I get I get into this discussion all the time with people. All right. And people's biggest problem, I think, is you know I hear it all the time from friends and family members and people that I talk to, and and, and rightfully so. I can I can I can understand where they may be coming from, but what would you say to the person that says? Well, I'm, I am pro-incarceration uh, in prison because if someone knows that, you know, they do something bad, they're going to pay for it. And if someone kills somebody, they know that uh, they could be killed themselves. So that, that, that uh, you know, keeps people from doing bad things. What would you say to them?
1: Well, I would, infer, you know, here's what I say first, but I want to tie, tie it in historically. But I would first say this. If you're going to pro-incarcerate, if that be the way you want to put it. But if you're going to remove a body from society that you believe has done wrong, you should have a blueprint in place for that person's life Mm. to go, you know, to take on a a different form, a journey of change. Right. In a restoration. You should have that written into the contract, quote unquote because what's happening is, is when you take and put people in these cages they are being treated less than human they uh are at a greater risk of being harmed even more from just the fact that yeah they did wrong yeah if you want to say they deserve to be punished what do, what does it look like because the people are determined determining who gets punished they don't look like me hmm. they don't live in my community They're really not my peers in the sense of that I know them and they know me. The people who are predominantly in these cages are African-American and the poor. But the people who are making these statements and opinions about how they should be treated, they're not. Hmm. And if we look at it historically, here's the thing I I think a lot of Americans don't get, and even black Americans and African-Americans. Is that the black man and woman in America who have ancestry rooted in chattel slavery have yet to receive justice themselves. Mm, talk about that. I mean, if we, just, if, okay, let's talk about the, 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 the hundreds of thousands of people that died, the middle past, Nobody did time for that. Mm. Let's talk about all the deaths that happened on the plantation. Nobody did time for that. Let's talk about the nearly 5,000 lynchings. Nobody did time for that. And then we take that history post-reconstruction, and then, you know, we go into a different form of terror with the Ku Klux Klan and the racism and the mistreatment and dehumanization of a people who are not what they could be. That's still growing and becoming and evolving. The black man and black woman in America is not yet what they will be. But no one can honestly say that those people that we come from, that I'm from, receive justice. Mm -hmm. And yet they are on the other end of justice and they get it the worst. Mm -hmm. Now, what if all black people in America felt like some white people feel about who should be locked up and who shouldn't be locked up? You know, we couldn't have this conversation. Right. That's right. And what I don't understand is, is that people don't, at least not where I go, talk about necessarily like, oh, look at America look at the worst thing America has done. All the time, when America goes around the world, you know, do other nations say, you know, you enslaved black people, you know, from Africa. Or um, you know, this? you put Japanese in the concentration camps or you know, you, you abused women for so long and finally you gave them justice or whatever, whatever the worst thing that we, I mean, just this state that we live in. You know, one of the last states to abolish uh, uh, chattel slavery. We still have slave language in our constitution. Mm. This slavery is prohibited except if you've been duly convicted of a crime. Mm. It's in Tennessee and it's in the United States Constitution. Mm. We haven't even gotten rid of the language. And yet we talk this incarceration encasement talk about what to be done. I think if you take somebody's body into captivity, you have a responsibility to make sure that person don't come out the same way that he or she went in. Right. So if you're going to put me in exile. Put me in exile. Help me to become a better person. Mm. Show me, help me to find out where I went wrong, mm. but maybe help me to understand that I was in trauma. Help me to understand that I'm still trying to recover from, you know, that that, that God touched me. I'm suppressing these memories and it, it comes out in this way. I mean, there are so many different reasons why people go, you know, and commit these violent acts or nonviolent acts and they still go to prison. And so when we talk about judging and retributive justice, we need to start with the country first. And, you know, some white people will say, OK, well, that was what my ancestors did, right? They will say that. That's true. You did not do that. No, you did not. But guess what? You benefited from it. Mm-hmm. You still benefit from it. right? Because just being white can be the difference from getting a loan and not getting a loan. From getting a job and not getting a job. From being shot by the police and not being shot by the police. Being white in America affords you certain privileges that being black does not. Mm. And when you're black in America and you're formally incarcerated, you double the whammy on a person. Mm. So it's even extra. So we deal with not just racism, we're dealing with felonism. Mm. And so, I mean, there's so many different angles that we can go at this thing. Which is why I, you know, in the Unheard Voices Outreach, we try to build bridges to freedom. It's not just a person getting out of prison. It's people in the community going back to the prison and participating in the process. Mm. Saying I'm willing to be your neighbor, I'm willing to help you find a way to get a living wage. Yes, you know it's it's so much more than I want to hurt somebody and harm somebody. So restorative justice has has certain practices, and the main one for me is community Mm. because I'm not in this alone. Right, you know, and that's the thing about being a human being. We we survive through the annals of history and time because we were together. You know, when we fought saber-toothed tigers and, you know, dinosaurs and all that, if it happened, I don't know, but we were together. Mm-hmm. Something divided us and we still are yet to deal with that division. And I don't like it because I don't participate in it, in the negative, but I talk about it so that we can illuminate you know, the sickness of it. Because I think racism is a sickness. It's an immaturity. It deals with a lot of fear. And it says to me that you don't have enough confidence within your own self to give another person who doesn't look like you the same opportunity that you want. So you institutionalize disadvantages. You did not access. You hoard wealth. You won't even share. We have billionaires and billionaires and billionaires how I many houses can you, you buy? How much money can you spend? You know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying give it away, but I'm just saying, though, why not? You know, this is the America we live in. We could, we could have the Lord's Prayer, for real, like, thy kingdom come, thou, thou will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. We could have that in America, but you have certain people that don't want us to have that. And my question is, why? Mm. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of building the best possible America that we could be?
0: That's right. What what would you kind of in wrapping this up, and we've been going more than an hour, but it, I oh, don't cool. want, I don't want to stop, but talk hey. to me. What what would be the main thing, the one thing that you would want to tell a guy a person like me, a white male that lives on the other side of the town who yeah. is comfortable and who's never has to deal with, you know, you know, maybe being shot at or going to prison. What, what is it, the one thing that you want to communicate and you want us to understand?
1: I mean, I don't know if I could just put it in one way, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to stretch it and say it like this. Number one, I'm not your enemy. Black people are not your enemy. Let's get in proximity. Let's get to know each other. Yes. You know, show up in some of these places where you normally don't go. Let me take you to a parole hearing with me. Let me take you in the court watch so we can see how these people we elect perform in these very powerful positions who make a lot of money and spend our tax dollars. You know, don't be afraid to enfranchise people who, if they could vote, They might vote for people that you care that you believe should be in positions of power as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, give back something that you didn't earn. And as we talk about grace, which is unearned merit, you don't earn the body that you come into the world with. That's the result of your parents coming together. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And you didn't earn the attributes that you're naturally born with. So if you're going to hoard your gifts, and I believe gifts are meant to be shared. Come on out. Come out and meet people you normally wouldn't meet because guess what happens? You'll find out it is not too much different in him and me and her and she and me and us. Right. That's what I would say.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Raheem, thank you so much. Um, how can people connect with you and what the, you know, if, if people want to find out more about what you're doing, um, do you want to give your website or is there any social absolutely. media or any of that?
1: Absolutely. absolutely. So I would say uh, go to uh, www.nashvillebailfund.org. There are going to be some opportunities available for uh, people in Nashville and anywhere else to participate with us in this court watch endeavor as we go in the courtroom. And we look at the judges and the district attorneys and attorneys and the the lawyers and how they perform in their positions. Um, And we're looking for volunteers and people to donate to the Nashville Community Bail Fund because right now we have six criminal court judges who really don't like what we're doing and they want to shut us down. And we've Mm. done nothing wrong besides help people who couldn't help themselves. Mm. And uh, as it relates to the Unheard Voices Outreach, it's UnheardVoicesOutreach.org. We're looking for people who want to go back and connect with people in prisons? come to some of the parole board hearings, uh, be re-entry consultants, uh, participate in this new uh, Bridges to Freedom endeavor, where we're trying to find people who want to donate anything that we can help uh, people who are coming out of prison get a leg up and get back on their feet. It could be knowledge. It could be clothing. It could be an old car. We want to sell it and teach responsibility. It could be some skills that you have. What, what we're trying to do is create community uh, through our organization mm. and, and to create friendship. And if, if people would just, you know, do that, I'd be happy. Uh, Raheem, Raheem at Unheard Voices Outreach, Raheem at org. They can email me. I'm available. I, I want to connect. That's what I do and maybe support by, you know, maybe buying my book, save your own life. (laughs) Choosing the right path is not always clear. It's on Amazon. Uh, and, uh, I always give away more than, than I keep, you know, so I'm not trying to be a millionaire. I just want to be able to do more than I'm doing right now to help people. That's beautiful.
0: Well Rahim, I just want to thank you. I thank you for, uh, first of all, your, Your beautiful soul and mind and heart that comes through. I thank you for your passion, the way that you believe and stand for um, restorative and transformative, as you say, transformative justice. Um, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I'm with you. There's a lot of us who are. And thank you for opening my eyes to some things that that I hadn't really thought about from this side. So um, I just blessings uh, and continued success on your work. And what uh-huh. you're doing, and if there's any way that uh, I or any any of our listeners can help, uh-huh. I, I'm encouraging them to please reach out to you, and, okay. g- and go to your go to your websites, find out what you're doing, and I'll do my best to tell your story.
1: Okay. Well, thank you, Bob, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I, I'm always open. You you have my number. You can always call me. You can always text me. I'm going to answer. I'll be here.
0: All right. Thank you, Rahim. Right. Talk to thank you soon. Bye bye. All right.